1: Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Juliet Hooker. She is Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science at Brown University. We will be discussing her newly published book, Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss, published in Princeton by Princeton University Press, 2023. Juliette, it's it's my absolute honor and privilege to be in dialogue with you today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here um, and to be talking about Black grief and white grievance.
1: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you would become as an adult?
0: Yeah, so I grew up on the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua um, in Central America in the um uh 1970s and 1980s when um the country was going through a um a civil war. And um, you know, the, the part of Nicaragua that I'm from is is the the region that has a Um, a significant uh, Black population that has historically lived in that region um, in conjunction with Indigenous peoples. And so I think um, because of the history of of where, you know, of the Caribbean coast and the sort of struggles over um, whether they were, you know, we were seen as, as Nicaraguan or not and how we differed from some of the dominant ways in which people thought about Nicaraguan national identity that I started thinking about questions of race um, and racial identity and nationalism. Um, and also just thinking about, you know, how racism manifests itself in in, in Latin America. And then I moved to the U.S. and um, and had lived here more than half my life now. And so I've also thought about, you know, the question of how to think about, the U.S. and Latin America together, which has been a, a big theme in my scholarship, and also um, thinking about what racial justice would entail, and then after, particularly after I came to the U.S., you know, becoming um, more well versed and and drawing on African American thinkers and Black political thought more generally, I mean that has been a, a focus of my scholarship.
1: What inspired you to write this book? what message do you hope to convey to readers
0: so i started writing the book um after the ferguson protests in 2015 and uh like many people you know i was i was um you know just uh horrified by what was happening by the ways in which um you know this outpouring of black grief was being met with with so much which such a um militarized and violent police response and so I um you know I I started writing um an essay that became um chapter two in the book which is this essay about the history of black protests and how to think about the movement for black lives and in relation to that and the ways in which um um people were, have reacted to it um both trying to discipline it and 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 also um you know arguing that it it departs from from previous um you know um iconic forms of activism such as the civil rights movement and then in in 2016 of course you had the the you know, Donald Trump's presidential campaign with the sort of racism, misogyny, anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so I started thinking about how um, there was this um, very palpable, mobilization of white grievance that was happening simultaneously as you had people mobilizing around black grief and so really that was the 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 sort of impetus where the book is saying you know these two things are happening together at or happening at the same time and we need to be able to think about together what's a framework that helps us to to think about why people are mobilizing in these ways and and um and you know the subsequent you know 2020 racial justice protests after the murders of George Floyd and Brianna Taylor, um, followed by the um, the insurrection um, on January 6th at the U.S Capitol just kind of reinforced the sense that um, that these were two of the black grief and white grievance were two of the driving forces um, in contemporary racial politics in the United States.
1: What are the primary themes in your book? What message does your book convey to readers?
0: So the book is um is primarily concerned with how citizens mobilize in response to loss, right? So um so thinking about the ways in which um people in the United States because it's it's concerned with um the examples that I draw upon are primarily from the history of the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, And looking, and it looks at the ways in which there's been a a very unequal distribution of loss in the United States, right? So um, black citizens have had to bear loss repeatedly and, and are expected to protest in only the most heroic ways, whereas whites have historically been more insulated from loss because they are they have been the dominant group politically, economically, socially. And so part of what the book is trying to do is to look at this history and to say, how is that shaping um, current threats to U.S. democracy? Um, and in particular, one of the things that I argue is that we often worry about Black riot, you know, so-called Black rioting or Black anger, but that the gravest threat to U.S. democracy right now is white grievance.
1: How does your book recontextualize the legacies of the Obama and Trump presidencies?
0: So I think one of the mistakes that we often make, um, or at least, you know, um, in a lot of the the media um, discussion of Trump is this, is seeing him as a kind of aberration. And I think part of what I do in this book is to say, he's not an anomaly, he, um, you know, we are living in a moment of, of sort of resurgent white grievance but white grievance is not new. And that it you don't, it, yes, you can go back to periods such as the period of following Reconstruction and you see how um, um, black gains are followed by um, racist backlash. And you see that in the 1960s as well after the civil rights victories, but more recently, right? Um, we have to see uh, Trump and Obama as really, um, One is a reaction to the election of the other, right? So that the you know Obama's election was experienced by by some as as a loss, as a you know as a as a moment in which um, whites were were displaced from the center of um, of U.S. political life. You know that that led, of course, to the Tea Party, to the you know um, take our slogans, which is let's take our country back and i think that um this then continued and 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 um you know exacerbated um with trump's presidency and um and since his um loss in 2020 um and and now you have you know um a you know a a significant part of the of the country of the republican party that's really consumed by racial resentment and by um, these kind of cultural um losses um that and and seeking to really um I think um dispense with democracy when it means that they um they are not when they're not able to win um fairly um um in um you know, Um, in electoral contests.
1: How does your study advance our understanding of loss?
0: So the book is really trying to think about political loss, right? And loss is a universal human experience. We all have lost someone or something. We do so throughout our lives. But by political loss, um, I'm looking, I'm thinking about losses that are, that are, losses that we have to attend to as democratic citizens and and one of the the things that um you know that i think we need to think about here when we think about political loss is the ways in which loss captures um these elements that aren't simply just grief or um or grievance, or sorrow, but exceeds, or harm, or injury, right? And so part of what I'm doing in the book, in particular, actually, is saying that when we think about political loss, we have much to learn from looking at African American thinkers as exemplary theorists of loss, which we haven't necessarily turned to them for those insights. And and I think one of the great virtues of of the tradition in this regard is that African American thinkers did not have the luxury of being sort of nostalgic thinkers, right? They, um, Ida B. Wells has been described as being fiercely anti-nostalgic. She's one of the the African American thinkers I write about in the book, and I think this is an apt um, way to to describe the tradition more generally, right? That there's no no moment in the past that that African American thinkers could turn to as a moment where, um, where there was greater racial egalitarianism, but they also could have not been able to be, you know, naive or sanguine about the future because, you know, the struggles. They knew for racial justice would outlive them, and so one of the things that I that I argue in the book that I think is is really important is that they show us a way to to um, to approach loss that is able to deal with contingency with vulnerability rather than having um, the response to loss be. Uh, you know, doubling down on the desire for domination in order to not experience loss. And so I think there's part of what I'm hoping that the book will do is, is really um, help us to think about loss by, by sitting with these thinkers um, and taking them seriously as, as theorists of loss.
1: Can you tell us about the save our sons and daughters movement the anti-violence organization of black parents that emerged in detroit in the 1980s why is it significant
0: yeah so so sad um that's the acronym um for their um their name is a really um fascinating um example um because it's an organization that emerges in Detroit. Um, it's founded by an activist named Clementine Barfield after um one of her sons is killed, and another is, is permanently injured um, as a result of, of uh of gun violence. And she was already an activist, and then she she creates um, she founds this organization that's really um um, an organization of parents who have lost children, um, to gun violence and they, and it becomes, um, eventually mostly mothers, but it's, it's really, um, it includes, you know, fathers as well. And, and the work that they did was really this work to try to, you know, to try to, to rethink the way in which um the deaths of their children were being were being seen, right? So um some of the, the the children who were killed were um you know were their deaths were dismissed because they weren't seen as innocent victims because let's say they might have been involved in some kind of illicit activity. Um, and part of what so sad did in its activism was say we need to care for all children and we need to care. Um, we need to find ways to affirm the lives of our children beyond violence and death. And so um I turn to it in the book as an example of what I call grieving activism, right? This way in which um you know, activism is both a way to continue to grieve their children, but it's also a way um um, you know, their their activism is is really about trying to to change the conditions that led to the death of their children.
1: What does the poet oh sorry
0: and of other children.
1: What does the poet Claudia Rankin mean? By suggesting that the condition of Black life is one of mourning,
0: so she's, she 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 writes she wrote this after um, you know thinking after you know a number of the the incidents of the of uh, of racist violence um, you know the the killing of Trayvon Martin the the mother um, Emanuel Church massacre in Charleston. Um, and, and, um, and part of what I think she's, um, she's trying to, to say by saying that is to say, you know, um, because black life is still so precarious, it's it, you know, because it can be still taken away in an instant by, you know, a total stranger who walks into your church and, and, and wants to foment a race war and just kills you, kills, a number of people or or in the case of Trayvon Martin right you're you're going to a store to get some skittles and and you know and somebody ends up gunning you down that there is this way in which I think what she's trying to say is both that death is ever present and is is always a you know is always a threat but also that the losses that black people have had to suffer have been so continuous that you know that mourning is a constant feature of black life
1: what are the similarities and differences in the meanings of the term loss the term harm the term grief and the term grievance are they interchangeable can you clarify what you mean by each term
0: this is a great question so um, so one of the things that I argue in, in the book, in Black Grief, White Grievance, is that a lot, we need to think about loss as more than, let's say, just harm or injury, which is often how we think about it, um, right? Um, so there are these these other dimensions to loss that aren't captured by saying, you know, a wrong was done to me, that there are these aesthetic and effective dimensions to loss that, um, that are really, um, that are really central to it. And that, um, and that exceed kind of this model of, you know, um, someone, you know, harmed me or injured me in some way. And so, and so that's, one of the ways in which I think we can think about this distinction, right? So Frederick Douglass writes in his autobiography about how, um, one of his autobiographies about how years after his escape from slavery, he only had to hear a slave spiritual to be, you know, transported back as it were to the plantation and that there was such great sorrow um, that those um, slave spirituals would, evoke in him, you know, in years, decades after, um, he, he had escaped slavery. And so this is part of what I mean by saying that loss has these, these, um, effective dimensions, um, that it's something that is not easily contained, you know, grief can come up at any moment, but it's also not just grief because I'm, thinking here, not just about individual human experiences, but about political loss. And, um, and for me, grief and grievance are two responses to loss, right? So people, you, you suffer a loss and you can respond by, by grieving it by, you know, experiencing sorrow, or you can respond by, by feeling like it was the result of a, of a, of a harm or an injury and then you mobilize right you you move to grievance you engage in activism to gain redress for for that harm so grief and grievance i think are two responses to loss and and loss is more than just harm or injury
1: can you tell us what the significance of Erica Garner's death?
0: Absolutely. So I write about Erica Garner's death at the beginning of chapter four, which is the chapter on Black maternal grief um, in the book, and I use her as an as a as an entry point her life for thinking about the cost of the kind of grieving activism that um that so many black people have um have engaged in right they talked about grieving activism in the case of so sad um so garner was also of course propelled into activism by the killing of her father eric garner by the nypd and she became um you know a very um, prominent activist um, in the wake of his death. And then she dies tragically at a very young age, um, shortly after giving birth. And so her death really points to these less spectacular ways in which Black people are also dying and are also being killed that we pay less attention to than, let's say, instances of police violence. Um, you know, it. Um, she died... Um, because um, you know she suffered a heart attack and her heart had out was already enlarged, um, and then she gave birth. and And black women have some of the the highest rates of maternal m- mortality in the United States. Um, and so, part of what I'm 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 trying to to think about by writing about her in that chapter is right? The ways in which we laud people, right? She was described as a, as a warrior for social justice. We laud their activism. We see them as heroes, but we don't pay attention to the fact that Erica Garner was also grieving, right? That she had suffered this enormous loss that she was trying to contend with at the same time as she, um as she had to become an activist. And also, and the other Point that I think is really important about thinking about Erica in relation to um, to her father, so the death of her father, her death, and the death of her father is the the way in which we we pay more attention to these spectacular instances of violence than we look than we do maybe to some of the more um, ordinary ways in which people continue to be killed by disparities in in health by. Um, by just the, the, the cost of having to live in a racist society that, you know, that isn't necessarily something that has to be um, that is going to manifest itself in being killed by the police, but manifests itself in the, the sort of wear and tear on the body, what, what um, we now call weathering that comes from from dealing with with discrimination.
1: Can you comment on the significance of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, the work by Harriet Jacobs?
0: Absolutely. So I write about um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl in chapter three, which looks at the work of Jacobs and Ida B. Wells. And what I'm trying to think about in that chapter is this um the ways in which there is extra work that uh, that people who's whose that marginalized people need to do to make their losses visible, right? So, um, so there we all know there are disparities in 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 care and concern for um, for the losses of different groups, and so for groups who aren't necessarily a priority there's all of this extra work that goes into, into, into trying to make their losses visible so that they can be attended to. Um, but there are costs that come with this process of trying to make loss visible, right? There are risks, um, because you might risk, for example, offering up, um, black pain or black suffering in in the service of generating white empathy but at what point does that you know become this kind of um problematic bargain where you have to show up you know you know you have to present these pain black bodies all of the time in order to try to shock people into into um into some kind of solidarity and also what are the you know what are the ways in which this, this is, you know, can become um, the humanizing in and of itself, right? What are the ways in which you, you end up just um, revealing these um, or having to, 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 um, to see black people as only right. Defined by suffering. And so in this chapter, I talk about the, um, how, Jacobs and Wells try to balance grief and grievance, right? How they try to tell the stories of Black suffering um, without only focusing on Black death, but also focusing on Black life. And incidents is a key text in that discussion because in it, you know Jacob's makes a lot of really interesting moves so she um she for example is really clear about sexual violence and slavery but she never gives us um you know a very explicit um rape scene for example um she also attends to Um, to Black life, she gives us all of these examples of how Black people care for each other and and manage to to form bonds, even um, against the attempts to separate them. And and that this loving, caring community that they manage against all odds um, to create is what sustains her and other enslaved people even as they're they're suffering these unimaginable harms right and and she talks about her struggles to try to um not just become free but to to care for her children um and the struggles of other enslaved women and the the ways in which slavery um you know um creates this this kind of maternal ambivalence because You know, what does it mean to bring a child into into that institution? So so incidents, I think, is is really a fascinating text. And when we look at what Jacobs is doing in in the text, we see her on the one hand calling on her white readers to 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 reject slavery, but also being really strategic about what she's willing to offer up about Black suffering in order to mobilize the white public.
1: Can you tell us about the 1917 essay by Ida B. Wells, The East St. Louis Massacre, The Greatest Outrage of the Century? Can you elaborate on its importance?
0: Yes. So again, this is this is that same chapter, and this is um, one of the texts by Wells that I I think um, shows the same kind of care that um, and the the commitment to depicting not just anti black violence, to depicting black people not simply as victims of violence, but to depicting them in their full humanity, and it you know on the Wells's account of the East St. Louis massacre is really, um, such an interesting text because the East St. Louis massacre, um, um, is this, this essentially this, this white riot where, um, you had had these tensions, um, you know, um, having to do with, with, you know, kind of unionization and, and, white and black workers and it sort of erupts into this this um you know this essentially this like white race riot that um leads to the killing and and um you know and essentially displacement of thousands of of black people and wells travels um from her home to, you know she was then living in, in Chicago she travels to St. Louis and she ends up going on this truck with the this Red Cross truck with these Black women who had been displaced from their homes. And she follows them around and, and records their stories as they try to save whatever possessions they can. Um, and one of the things that you see in all of these stories is like these wealth of details about their lives. So, you know, so she she talks about um, you know, what they did, how many children they had, what they lost in the massacre. And through this, these seemingly mundane details, we get a picture of the lives that these people lived before the violence, right? So they're not simply defined by the violence that's visited upon them, but we get this kind of accounting of Black life that I think is, is really central to Wells's work. Um, it's not she's not simply somebody who right she's famously known for um, for collecting and presenting us with the with the statistics um, on lynching, but she also gives us these kind of haunting um, narratives of, of the lives of, of people who um, who suffer, violence and dispossession and and I think that that's just as important um to her work as the you know the 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 sort of marshaling of statistical data that she's well known for
1: what misconceptions about grief and activism does your book seek to challenge why do these misconceptions exist and persist
0: so i think one of the the misconceptions or um I guess one of the expectations that we have about activism, that I I um I'm trying to challenge in this book is this notion that um, that activists are these kind of heroic people who which they are right, but that um, in seeing them in this way, we often don't appreciate their full humanity. I think the and 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 we also I think kind of outsource right the kind of um work um that's needed to make um democracy real to um to to activists rather than feeling like this is work that we all need to take up ourselves and so part of what the book is trying to do is is particularly saying you know we have this history in the united states of relying on black people to do this work to, to um to challenge white supremacy and we've come to expect them to be activists in this way even um as we don't necessarily um want them to be leaders right we're not necessarily want them to become um you know the people who who shape um you know, U.S. politics, but we want them to do this other kind of labor. And so, um, you know, one of the, the um, things that I talk about in the book is is this, um, you know, um, this Vogue cover of Stacey Abrams um, that was Prior to the 2020 election, where it was like, can Stacey ever save U.S. democracy? And of course, it's, you know, in some ways, you could say, you know, she did. You know, what she did in Georgia, along with other um, Black voting rights activists, was was clearly very pivotal to the 2020 election. But why is that work necessary, right? This is the thing. Like, as we laud that work as heroic, what we don't pay attention to is the fact that if we need to do that work just for democracy to to semi function as it should that means that there's serious problems with us democracy right so so it's so part of what i'm trying to challenge is this idea that you know when we you know I, we all remember these stories from um you know on on election nights so oh the the people who stood in line for hours waiting to vote and of course that's that shows you know, such enormous, um, you know, civic um, commitment. But at the same time, we need to ask, why were people standing in hours waiting to vote? That means there's something really wrong. And that's a sign of, um, you know, a serious deficit in U.S. democracy um, rather than the way in which we usually think about it, which is to, um, to say, oh, look at this, the heroic way in which people are are putting in all this work to exercise their right to vote.
1: What new light does your book shed on the history of Black protest?
0: So I think one of the things that the book is trying to do is to to really um, challenge some of our, some of the ways in which the, you know, the misremembering of the civil rights movement um has come to constrain um how we see black protests today, right? So so based on this kind of romantic narrative of the civil rights movement, um, where you had, right, of course, these heroic protesters who engaged in, in civil disobedience even when they were um, um uh, violently attacked, um and 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 were able to prevail, I think there is this sense um that you know that the in retrospect, right, that there was this they were entirely civil and there were these, yes, there were these clashes with 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 the police at times, but that they were able to um, you know, induce these moral transformations in, um, in the white public. And part of I think the the way in which that misleads us is is that it that narrative misleads us is that we forget that actually um, Dr. King did not become you know um, overwhelming overwhelmingly popular until after he was assassinated that the civil rights protesters were seen as as radicals that they were seen as as agitators that they their demands were seen as untimely right and so part of what i think the book is is trying to show is to say you know when we compare and the comparison is often to say um when we compare you know contemporary um black protests to those iconic Protests in the past. Um, when we say you are not following the script of the civil rights movement, or you're not doing this the right way, um, or you're being too angry, or you're being um, you know if you if you don't if you don't completely um, follow the the tenets of civil disobedience, then you'll never um, be heard. Is that we forget how contentious um, even the most um, right the most um peaceful black protests are right so if you think about the um the ways in which people were extremely critical some people were of the protest by by athletes who knelt at the national anthem right nothing could be more peaceful there was absolutely no no nothing violent about those and yet they were also controversial. So part of what I'm trying to do in the book is, is to say is to show how um, we have these, these very narrow and constrained accounts of what um, um you know what the actions that Black protesters can engage in in order for them to be um legible and to be seen as legitimate, and that this is is really, um, you know, um, constraining black politics and also um, shows that we we haven't allowed um, black people to express themselves politically the same range of of um, of political tactics and emotions that others are allowed to engage in.
1: What new perspectives are gleaned in this book? Regarding the history and legacy of lynching,
0: so one I talk about lynching in uh, chapter three of Black Grief, White Grievance, when I write about um, about Ida B. Wells, who was right the the premier anti-lynching activist of the of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and one of the really interesting things that Wells did. She was a pioneer in using lynching photographs to, um, as part of anti-lynching activism. And this is really interesting because lynching photographs, of course, weren't taken in order to denounce lynching. They were taken as souvenirs. um, um, And they depict these um, often smiling, you know, white crowds with um, people of all ages, including women and children, um, who are surrounding these horribly mutilated, um, um, uh, Black people who were, who were killed in these horrific ways. And, um, and when Wells goes on a tour abroad, she goes to to the UK to denounce lynching. She says, you know, the European audiences didn't believe me. So she starts using the photographs to show no that these things actually happened. Um but what's interesting about lynching photographs is that they then um, you know, when at, when the NAACP begins its its own anti-lynching campaign, they kind of become um You know, um, interchangeable, right? So you have this—the you know the the specificity of the victims kind of disappears, and what people focus on is is the sort of actions of the white mob and the way in which that's deforming U.S. democracy. And so um, I think one of the things that that it's important for us to to grapple with um, in terms of this use of lynching photographies that it raises all kinds of questions about, you know, um, how, what are our expectations for how people are going to react to these depictions of atrocity, but also um, how do we tell these stories, how do we tell stories of suffering that we want people to empathize with and be moved to action without, you know, kind of losing sight of the humanity of the victims, right? Without just having them be, you know, um, you know, an example of somebody who suffered a harm, but how do we humanize them? And I think this is what um, we need to, this is where the the history of lynching and of lynching activism holds really, um, I think, important lessons for us in that regard.
1: Can you explain figure 2.1 for us? How does it depict John Lewis?
0: Ah uh, yes, that's a a really interesting um one. So throughout the book, throughout Black Grief, White Grievance, I um I have um, you know, I intersperse um poetry and images, and part of that is a response to um to the way in which, as I said, loss has this effective and aesthetic dimension and 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 I really try to capture that by bringing in those artifacts and 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 that um, figure in particular is a uh, cartoon that appeared in the Atlanta Journal Constitution that shows um John Lewis as the as the bridge and he you know it shows his body you know as a bridge between these two of land formations and on the the side of one is a voting booth and there are these stick figures who are essentially stepping over him to get to the voting booth and of course we all know the the, the story of of, Lew, of John Lewis and you know him getting beaten on the marches in Selma as a as a young activist um which is what the the figure of him as the bridge is is referencing. But I use this photograph in the book to to again ask this question about, um, you know, whether we are taking a certain kind of political labor by black people for granted and expecting them to make these heroic sacrifices on behalf of US democracy, right? So this figure of, of John Lewis is this, Right. This person that people are literally walking over to in order to exercise their right to vote, I think points to I think this 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 way in which we um, we expect a certain kind of heroism of black people and we take it for granted that they will make those enormous sacrifices on behalf of U.S. democracy and don't always attend to the ways in which that that um, you know, that means that we're not seeing them as, as, as fully human. Um, you know, this is in the context of me also talking about um, the work of, of Daniel Allen, who argues that sacrifice is central to democracy. Um, and, you know, and and, um, and so part of, she says, the way that democracy works is that we are always giving things up for others. Because of course, in democracy, you can't always win. And so sometimes you lose and you have to accept that if the conditions were fair. But the problem comes in when it's the same people who keep losing over and over and who are expected to always lose well. And um, and so that's part of what that figure, that image of Lewis, for me, um, points to, um, the fact that, you know, we we take this kind of black heroism for granted, and we expect we expect it to be um, displayed um, in order to make U.S. democracy better. Without necessarily, um, you know, wanting to um, have black people um, as leaders, not necessarily wanting their poli- wanting to embrace their political ideas, but we want this particular kind of labor from them.
1: Can you describe the history and legacy of African-American mourning traditions as they are presented in your book?
0: Absolutely. So as the Claudia Rankin statement that we were discussing earlier, that the condition of Black life is one of mourning, um, illustrates the, you know, um, and as um, has been shown by um, a lot of important scholarship, um, on on African American mourning traditions, that um, because of the the you know the constant um, nature of of black grief, that African Americans have had to to develop ways to grieve um, that enable people to, to continue on. Right. So that, um, one of the things that I, I talk about in the book is, is the ways, is the ways in which, um, black mourning doesn't really, um, fit into the sort of established psychoanalytical accounts. Um, because for example, the, the sort of psychoanalytical model is, is, you know, you have to go through the, the stages of grief and then eventually you, you move past it and if you 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 don't then you're engaging in this kind of um you know melancholia that's that's not really moving on but how do you move on if if you are confronted with constant losses right you can't move on if the loss is ongoing so one of the things that I think is is really um is really important about thinking about how um, um, African American mourning traditions is thinking about why this facility with mourning, why these kind of, you know ways of of, of, of not just focusing on death, but focusing on life have had to be developed. and, and how do we how do we honor those, um, you know, the wisdom, of that tradition without instrumentalizing it. Because this is one of the things that I I critique in the book that we often, right, look to um, black or African-American mourning traditions as this kind of supplement for democracy, right? That if we, that African-Americans can provide this model for how to do mourning in a more productive way that doesn't lead us to the the kind of problematic um, national mourning, such as the one that followed after 9/11 that then enables this kind of um you know exercise of imperial power abroad that has and such disastrous consequences or that you know leads to you know the the um the way in which um muslim um us citizens are are really um you know um mistreated in the wake of, of 9/11 right that this this kind of sense of the of the of of the nation having suffered right an injury and that we have to um and so then we have to respond in this in this way can can lead to these very um the the to the production of these really problematic um um forms of of um political mobilization and so um this is not to say that that we don't have anything to learn or we shouldn't turn to, um, to the tradition to learn from it, but to say, um, how can we, that, how can we draw on it while also say, while also recognizing that the facility, right, with mourning represents in itself, um, an ongoing loss and that, and that what we need to do is, is to, is to try to minimize those losses, is to say, how do we, how do we, um, how do we get to a, um, to a place where Black people don't have to mourn so much, right? Or, or so well, because they are constantly having to do it.
1: Who did you write this book for? Who do you consider your ideal reader or ideal readers? Who do you consider your imagined audience or audiences? who were you trying to reach in writing this book
0: That's a really good question. I mean, you know, of course, I'm an academic, so I guess I suppose my first readers are are um fellow um political theorists and faculty and students and and people in other disciplines who are interested in in these questions, but I think um, beyond that, I would hope that um, folks outside the academy will, will read the book, will look at some of the, the ideas presented in the book, and will find that it resonates with their own analysis of the, the moment that we find ourselves in, and, and, and hopefully will help them think about, um, you know, think about um, what is happening in U.S. democracy today. So I would say, you know, I hope that um that people, that a wide range of people will read the book and um and that they will they will find that it it helps them think through this moment of a very um, you know, very grave um uh threats to U.S democracy and also this this moment of, of racist backlash that we find ourselves in um and 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 I also, you know, Hope that ap- that activists find that it 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 is respectful and um and adequately um tries to grapple with with their experiences.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? What have you been working on? presently what are you working on now what are you working on next
0: the dreaded what's your next book question um no I'm just kidding I um so there was um uh, what was going to be a chapter in this book that I ended up having to cut that was looking at um at confederate monuments was looking at the question of, of what should we do about racist monuments because I talk in the book about symbolic loss and, and, and thinking about why people become, um, so, um, so energized by, by some of these, um, these, um, changes that seem, you know, not, not terribly consequential, like, um, you know, like whether or not a a monument, um, um, to a slave owner is, is removed or somebody who fought on behalf of slavery. And so um, so I've been thinking a lot um, about monuments and I'm, um, I've been writing an article that looks at some of the inaugural moments of, of Confederate celebration in the United States and um, thinking about them in a hemispheric um, sense because I write about them in light of an essay by the Cuban, um, intellectual Jose Martí when the 1880s is living in the United States and writes about them. So, so yes, I'm thinking about monuments and, and trying to think about, um, you know, the, the, the sort of wave of monument removal that followed, particularly these moments of, of, um, you know, of racial confrontation, the racial justice protests of 2020 and thinking about um, the the question of uh, the kind of civic work that monuments do.
1: I wish you the very best of luck. That sounds amazing. Thank you. And thank you as well for your generosity, eloquence and erudition as communicated to us in our dialogue today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated the conversation and the thoughtful questions.
1: Thank you. Uh, As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Juliet Hooker. She is Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science at Brown University. We have been discussing her newly published book, Black Grief White Grievance, The Politics of Loss, published in Princeton by Princeton University Press, 2023. This has been the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Thank you very much. And Juliet, thank you for all your wisdom.
0: It was my pleasure. Thank you.